I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the book of Acts. Our text is Acts 8, 25 through 40. Peter and John do not appear to have stayed long in Samaria. That's one request I'd have for Luke. I'd love more indication on how long things take. Luke's good with giving us names. We get a lot of names of people in Acts. So we can reconstruct a broad timeline from major events. For example, the crucifixion, resurrection, and Pentecost happen in 30 AD. That's our starting point. And we know from Roman sources that Herod Agrippa died in Caesarea in 44 AD. And that's in Acts 12. And so that gives us 14 years for the first half of Acts, where Peter is our main figure. From Acts 1-1 through 12-24, 30 AD to 44 AD. How to break down that 14 years takes a lot of guesswork. Later in the book, Luke will give us more time frame. He'll tell us that Paul spent a year in Antioch. Then on his second missionary journey, he was a year and a half in Corinth. Then on the third journey, he was two years in Ephesus. Then at least two years in prison in Caesarea and two years under house arrest in Rome. Luke gives us these long periods where when Paul is in one place, So I'm going to make an assumption that Peter and John and Philip are in Samaria less than a year, because if it had been longer, I think Luke would have told us. But knowing how long Paul was in Damascus, and Luke doesn't tell us about that, you know, we don't find out about that until we read the letter to the Galatians, I'm just guessing they didn't stay so long in Samaria. Their their ministry seemed to be more on the move, though on the move over a significant period of time. We have to keep that in mind, 14 years for this first half of Acts. Acts 8.25 reports about Peter and John. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They're making that 20-mile, 30-kilometer or so trek back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel as they go to Samaritans. They didn't go to Samaria to become pastors of a church. They affirmed both for themselves and for the Samaritans that the new covenant word of God had truly been received. They taught, and they returned to Jerusalem, but they didn't return straight away. They're not pure administrators on a business trip. You know, let's just go there, witness it, get back. Their heart is to see people come into relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and they take time along their journey to witness in the villages that they pass by. Philip is also not called by God as a pastor of a local church. He seems to be serving in the role of a traveling evangelist. Sometimes he's doing cross-cultural work, sometimes not. In Acts 8.5, he is proclaiming Christ to the Samaritans. In Acts 8.35, he preached Jesus to the Ethiopian. In Acts 8.40, moving along the Judean coastline from Azotus northward to Caesarea, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities, presumably Jewish cities proclaiming Christ to Samaritans, preaching Jesus to a Gentile, preaching the gospel to Jews. That's how Luke describes Philip's ministry. Philip aims to preach the good news of Jesus in the whole region to everybody, whoever he meets, whatever their culture. He was pushed out of Jerusalem by the circumstances of persecution. God uses events in our lives to move us forward in his will. Philip is also led directly, in this case, by an angel of the Lord. And at some point, we're going to need to talk about angels because they keep appearing in the story of Acts. I'll wait a little longer. The second time Peter gets released from prison by an angel, 
will be a good place to stop and, and think about the truth that though human beings are by far the primary messengers spreading the gospel to other human beings, we are not the only beings in relationship with God participating in carrying out his will. There is this whole spiritual realm that we just occasionally get glimpses of, and we'll come back to that in chapter 12. For now, we recognize the unique experience Philip has, along with a select group of men and women through the biblical story, to receive direct marching orders from God delivered by an angel. The reference to the angel, the appearance of the angel may suggest that an important event in the spread of the gospel is about to happen. Angels most often appear in the Bible, especially from Daniel on, to give us a word about the Messiah at a, at a significant moment. It really makes me wonder about the impact this man is going to have back in Ethiopia. But that's not part of this story. In this story of Philip and the Ethiopian, we're going to see the gospel moving further out culturally. The Samaritans are a half step away from the Jews. The Ethiopians are a, a giant full step away from the Jews. This is a story of inclusion. And it's not only the inclusion of an Ethiopian, it's the inclusion of an Ethiopian eunuch. That will be important. At the same time that this is a story about the gospel crossing cultural boundaries, it's also a story of God's sovereign action to bring an individual into relationship with himself. God cared deeply about this Ethiopian seeker. And I think it shows that God cares deeply for Ethiopians who will benefit from the message that this seeker is going to take back with him. So God sent an angel to tell Philip to go because God wanted Philip to meet this man. Acts 8, 26-40 But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel, 
to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Luke uses a repetition of short action verbs as command and response. This is the classic biblical formula for obedience. The angel says, get up and go, so he got up and went. That repetition in the command and response emphasizes immediate obedience and shows to us Philip's heart for God. God tells me what to do, I do it. He says, get up and go to Gaza, I'm going to get up and go to Gaza. You might say you would too, and if an angel told you, but the Bible has stories about people questioning angels, so we might not assume that our obedience would be automatic just because it was an angel, though I do imagine an angel would help clear up whether we're hearing God right or not. God's instructions to Philip are not very precise. He's not told where he needs to be on the road to Gaza or what time he needs to be on the road to Gaza. Just get going and leave what's next to God. God often gives us the next step without telling us what's going to happen after that step or even why we're taking that step. We get up and go. On the road down to and through Jerusalem, Philip may have passed hundreds of people. One of the more intimidating people he passes is a court official from a foreign land. He is very wealthy, riding in a chariot. He is a political figure of influence. His skin is the full black of Africa, not the olive color of the Jew. His people are fierce warriors, barbaric in Jewish eyes. He travels with a group, surely having his own protection. Riding, he sits up high, not on the same level as another walker on the road, and he's not looking at Philip. He's not inviting any kind of conversation. His head is down reading. His retinue is intimidating. He's not approachable at all. This is certainly not the person. You know, you're looking around for the person you're supposed to meet, and you, you catch their eyes, and you're thinking, oh, that's who, I'm, that's who I'm looking for? This can't be the guy. But then it is. The Spirit of God instructs Philip, go up and join his chariot. Now, I don't know if this was an audible voice in the mind or a strong impression. It certainly sounds like it was an audible instruction, go up and join his chariot. God's being very clear to Philip. Philip, for his part, obeys. He runs up to the chariot. I don't think the running is exuberance on Philip's part. I don't think there's any other way to keep up with a fast-moving chariot. You know, he has to jog alongside just to keep up. Fortunately, the Ethiopian likes to read out loud. And I'm not sure if he's reading just for himself out loud or if he was reading to a fellow traveler or if he wanted his driver to hear the Bible. Whatever the reason, it provides an immediate bridge for Philip. For all the potential barriers that exist between these, these two men, every hesitation and problem that could rise up in Philip's mind to prevent him from speaking, there's no way I'm talking to that guy. He looks powerful and dangerous. And even if I don't get speared by one of his men, I'd look pretty foolish jogging alongside his chariot trying to speak. In spite of all the potential reasonable barriers, the man is reading out loud the book of Isaiah. Bam! It's an immediate bridge. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip gasps as he's running along. Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And what is the Ethiopian man reading? Of all the Old Testament passages he could be reading, he is reading the most clear prophetic passage of the atonement of Jesus Christ that you can find in the Old Testament. I sometimes read this passage to students without telling them where it's from in the Bible, and then I ask them if they know, and they always guess it's from the New Testament. 
and probably written by Paul. Let's read a little more of the context to get the full impact. Luke quotes Isaiah 53, 7b to 8a. I'm going to start earlier and go a little further. This is Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 9. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? asked the seeking Ethiopian. That's good Bible observation. He's not trying to interpret what he doesn't know. He's asking questions of the text. Who's the prophet talking about? And could there be a better possible lead-in to explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ? From a human point of view, Philip obeyed God when God directed. He didn't hide during the persecution. He left Jerusalem with the plan of talking to people about Jesus. He obeyed when the angel said, get up and go. And then for his part, the Ethiopian is seeking truth. He came to Jerusalem to worship the God of the Jews And he spent some serious money to acquire the scroll of Isaiah, and he has it with him in the chariot. And that's what these men have done. From God's side, God gave Philip the courage and the will to witness. God is at work in our hearts to will and to do. God worked in the Ethiopian's life, creating a desire and somehow bringing people into his life to point him to Jerusalem as a source of truth. God arranged for Philip and the Ethiopian to arrive on that road at that moment together. And God prompted the mind of the Ethiopian so that he would be reading, and not only reading, but of all the Old Testament books, he would be reading Isaiah. And out of 1,300 verses in Isaiah, he would be reading from the middle of chapter 53 about Jesus Christ. And with everyone ready and in place, God spoke to Philip by his spirit, go up and join his chariot. God is sovereign in our lives. God's eye was on this Ethiopian to bring him into his kingdom. God's eye was on Philip to bless him with the joy of helping bring this man into the kingdom. God's eye is on you and the road you're on and the people you're going to meet. God is sovereign in our lives. Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, He preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? God has called this moment to happen. 
There is no need to wait for baptism when the circumstances of faith are so clear. The eunuch is ready to identify himself with Jesus Christ. Philip has confidence in his profession of faith. The eunuch is going back to Ethiopia, so there's no foreseeable option for him to first get involved in a Christian community and go through baptism classes. Philip's not going to see him again. I love the detail Luke gives in the conversation. Look, water, why not? And then we get verse 37, and it's one of those rare verses that may not be authentic uh, to the original writing of Scripture. Uh, My Bible leaves it in the text, but makes a note telling me that this verse doesn't appear in the earlier, more reliable manuscripts. There's nothing wrong with the verse. It it fits well with what we've been reading in Acts. It's, It's just that there's a group of ancient manuscripts that have the verse, and there's a group of ancient manuscripts that don't have the verse. So where we usually have harmony, now we have a problem. Here's the verse, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So there's nothing wrong with the verse. It's just we're not sure if it, are the manuscripts without it right or is the manuscript with it right? And it's hard to imagine why any scribe would leave this verse out while copying the text of Acts. And why do some manuscripts not have it if it was original? Now, why would you drop this verse out? It's not so hard to imagine why a well-intentioned scribe might insert it. Baptism should follow a genuine statement of faith, and without verse 37 being there, we're left assuming that Philip challenged the Ethiopian to believe and that the Ethiopian indeed understood and believed in Jesus. And with the context Luke has given us so far, it's a safe assumption. We look at the message Peter has preached four times, and we look at the message of of Philip in Samaria that, that he preaches before he baptizes We don't need an explicit statement in the text telling us that Philip would have expected the eunuch to believe and the eunuch would need to give some kind of confession of faith before baptism. We can assume that from what we've read so far in Acts. But it appears that at some point a scribe wanted to make sure that we understand this so that nobody gets baptized without believing. And so he inserts, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Whether stated explicitly, as as we have in verse 37, or we're supposed to understand it implicitly, this is the kind of assertion of faith required for baptism that Philip would have sought. And having recognized the, the eunuch's sincere confession, what would Philip do? You know, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? Well, we read on, and he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found him at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. It was that quick. One afternoon together, and the Ethiopian's life is changed forever. He goes on his way rejoicing. So his life and those he would influence back in his homeland. And something else spiritual happens here, and and it's not explained, but somehow Philip's just gone uh, down to Azotus. Let's talk a little more about how the Ethiopian is presented here in this passage and about how Jesus is presented in the passage. About the Ethiopian going a little deeper into who he was, 
will help us understand better the significance of this conversation. Candace is not a name, but a title for the Queen Mother, whose kingdom probably centered in the region of Upper Nubia, Meroe, rather than in modern-day Ethiopia. And that region south of Egypt, along the Nile River, is located in modern-day Sudan. So it's north of modern-day Ethiopia. In appearance, the Ethiopian eunuch would have been black African, not Egyptian. He's Nubian. He would have been raised in a polytheistic religion of many gods and spirits. Most likely, he had at some point been castrated, having his testicles cut off. Eunuchs had a trustworthy reputation in the ancient Near East and were particularly associated with the care of a king's harem or for royal women. It was not unusual for eunuchs also to be given financial responsibility. They were considered trustworthy, and it could be at a very high level like it was with this man. He apparently gained knowledge of Yahweh through some Jewish source. And we read in Acts 2 that some of those at Pentecost were Jews from Egypt. And how did they get there? Well, way back, Jeremiah records how he was forcibly taken into Egypt with a remnant of Jews who escaped the deportation to Babylon in 600 B.C. They stayed a while in Judea, but then they got scared and they fled to Egypt and they settled there. F.F. Bruce estimates as many as 100,000 Jews were settled in Egypt and Libya by the first century A.D. So there's, a, there's sizable Jewish communities. The Jewish concept of one true God who communicated a clear law for relationship with him and a high view of morality attracted pagans, disillusioned or disappointed with their own religious system. So it wasn't uncommon that there were God-fearers who were uh, seeking something deeper, something more true, and, and who were willing to submit to a religious culture that was different from their own. Judaism did present a number of obstacles for non-Jews. If you wanted to be serious about Yahweh, they made it hard to just add him in as one of the gods you worshipped. You don't play with Yahweh. Their requirements. The Old Covenant requirements touched every area of life, creating a distinct religious culture. So a God-fearer could pray to and worship Yahweh, even attend to the, the synagogue, but still remained at a distance, not considered Jewish. A proselyte, as opposed to a God-fearer, a proselyte to Judaism, would submit to following Old Covenant requirements, such as keeping the Sabbath, obeying the food and other cleanliness laws, and being circumcised if a male. Jews didn't move towards the culture of seekers. Seekers were theologically required to move towards the culture of the Jews because of Old Covenant requirements, you know, requirements put in place by God, not just cultural, but uh, biblical. Though by this time the requirements had grown considerably, the religious culture was Old Covenant plus. But at its base, there are significant biblical requirements, even if you remove the human tradition that was built on top of that. In addition to the religious cultural barriers, this particular man faced another significant barrier to inclusion. God spoke through Moses, saying in Deuteronomy 23.1, No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter into the assembly of the Lord. Other translations just say it clearly, no one who is a eunuch shall enter the assembly of the Lord. By the word of God, eunuchs could not fully join the worship assembly of Israel in the temple. The command sounds like a harsh exclusion. 
recognizing that one of the purposes of the law was to minimize sin in the culture of Israel, we should also recognize the protective power of the law. God established a number of laws intended to protect the Israelites from unwisely adopting or continuing cultural practices prevalent in Egypt and in Canaan. Castrating men as eunuchs, an acceptable practice promoted under certain circumstances, was now forbidden in Israel because of this law. Not only is it forbidden, but there's an associated punishment to deter its practice. All Jewish, all Jewish adults are to participate in the assembly. Castration would exclude participation. And as a result of this protective law established at the beginning of Israel on Mount Sinai, we don't see castration practiced in, in Israel. That's why you don't read about Jewish eunuchs because of this law. And we might think it'd be easy to prevent castration from happening without such a strict law of exclusion from the assembly. Just tell guys, don't do it. You know, you would think they wouldn't do it. But oddly enough, the practice came back in the Christian era. A misguided glorification of celibacy led to the even more misguided, perverted practice of castration among some extreme monastic orders. Worse was the practice of castrating prepubescent boys to maintain a falsetto singing voice into adulthood. That was a real thing. Uh, The last castrato of the Sistine Chapel choir lived as late as 1922, before it was finally, it had been abolished and and the last guy died. The Christian church could have really benefited from understanding the intent of the Old Testament law of the eunuch to protect boys and men from castration. That's the, the emphasis is not on exclusion for the sake of exclusion. The emphasis is in don't do this. Do not have this as part of your culture. If you do, they, they will be excluded. Which, by the way, doesn't mean exclusion from salvation. It, it is exclusion from the assembly. It doesn't mean that they cannot be saved by grace through faith in Yahweh. It's similar, but for different reasons with the law of the leper. They're excluded for contagious reasons. The eunuchs are excluded so that the practice would not be adopted in in Israel. But in in both cases, with the eunuch or the leper, exclusion from assembly doesn't mean exclusion from our salvation. So that's important to keep in mind. The positive intent of the law to minimize sin and protect individuals from a damaging practice, uh, even though there were good reasons for it, still created a difficult barrier for men like this Ethiopian eunuch who were from a culture where this law didn't protect them before they were castrated or if they chose to be castrated. And so now, even if he were to convert to Judaism, he wouldn't be able to enter into the fullness of community because of the mutilation he experienced before. And it was something that could not be undone. So what hope could somebody like him find in the religion of Israel? I I wonder very much whether he had read on already further in the book of Isaiah. And I imagine he had. I I think there's a reason this guy likes Isaiah. That's because two chapters after the passage Philip hears him reading in his chariot, there is another passage that would speak deeply to him. It's in Isaiah 56, 1 through 5. So listen to this. Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. 
Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. Luke gives us so many first names in the book of Acts. He tells us who people are. I wonder why this man's name is not provided. And I, I believe the reason is that the message of this story is bigger than he is. And it's important for us to recognize that he is an Ethiopian. He is a foreigner. And he is a eunuch. He is one who is ceremonially excluded. He's, he's a real foreigner. He's not a half-step from the Jews, not even the more significant step to Hellenistic culture, like the Romans who speak the same language as the Jews, but he's further out there. You know, he's an Ethiopian, exotic maybe, but far removed. He's other. And he's a eunuch whose body has been mutilated for social purposes and is specifically pointed out as being excluded. God promises through Isaiah that the foreigner who seeks him will not be separated, and the eunuch who seeks him will not be a dry tree. They will not be cut off. That's, that's language for the eunuch. Your mutilation will be overcome by spiritual blessing. And what was prophesied by Isaiah, and, and it was technically true under Old Covenant, is now made immediately accessible through the New Covenant Gospel. The law of the Lord established barriers for the protection of Israelite citizens, but it wasn't an impossible barrier to, to cross for those who truly wanted to worship the Lord. You know, Ruth was welcomed in. Rahab and Tamar and Naaman were welcomed in. Isaiah assures the eunuch with his prophecy that if he were to seek Yahweh with his heart, fear him and show his faith through obedience, he would be welcomed in. And Yahweh would give him an everlasting name. This story, at this point in the book of Acts, reveals to the reader that something about the gospel of Jesus Christ is tearing down the wall that divides, making a more open way for foreigners and even eunuchs to come to Yahweh. When the eunuch asked, what prevents me from being baptized? You know, if, if we were a good Jew like Philip, we would immediately be thinking, well, you're a eunuch, and I don't know what to do about that. I know Deuteronomy, uh, but I'm not sure how it applies. I've never witnessed to a eunuch before. Philip, however, doesn't hesitate. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ has torn down the religious cultural barrier, the, the purity barrier. The, the veil of the curtain was ripped in two, and in Jesus Christ we can go into the Holy of Holies without fear. Well, if you believe in Jesus Christ, what reason is there you should not be baptized, my Ethiopian eunuch brother? I can't think of one. And they go down into the water together. A Jewish man and black African man together in the water certainly rejects racial divisions that, that unfortunately get put up in the Christian church. And so this is a message 
for us today. At first thought, it seems to me that I'm, I'm not likely to come in contact with a eunuch. Uh, but, but then I think, well, what about the transgender movement? You know, steadily growing in acceptability as a practice in modern cultures. Does Philip's response to the eunuch have anything to say how I ought to treat someone who's gone through gender reassignment surgery? It seems to me it does. It's an extreme case of somebody in our, in our modern culture that we might consider outside the camp of Christianity. There, there are other less extreme, you know, d- depending what, how you grew up or what kind of church you come from, and whether we're talking about tattoos or hair color or dressing or piercings or um, you know, some kind of decision someone made earlier in their life that seems to put them just too far outside of the camp. We're going to expect a lot from them before we let them in. You know, teenage pregnancy, drug use, prison time, homosexual behavior, you know, whatever past taboos you have broken that have put you beyond the pale or, or that, have, that makes somebody unacceptable. And even if we don't say it intellectually, our, our, all of our feeling when we're in conversation creates a barrier. Is transgender surgery that thing that, that puts people too far out that they can't be welcome into the family, that God is not going to give them a name as son and, and daughters. What, what was that true of eunuchs? Were, were eunuchs outside, those who have been mutilated for social purposes, were, were they outside the pale? To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. Yes, they have cut the body, but if they turn away from a a false identity of their own making or or of society's making, and they turn back to me and they hold on to me, I will not cut them off. I will give them a name. So to be clear, I stand against transgender surgery. So this this is not a, a promotion of that life decision, which I think is a perversion of the identity that God has given someone um, at birth. At the same time, I believe that God offers to anyone who has gone through transgender surgery the same offer Peter has communicated throughout his speeches. Repent and return to God, and you will find forgiveness and experience refreshment. No one is excluded by their past. Everyone willing to submit to God and and receive the name he would give them, to receive the identity that, that God would offer, everyone who would receive that from God is welcome to come into the family of God. Philip's witness to the Ethiopian eunuch tells us something about the gospel of Jesus Christ as an open call to all who come. It also tells us something about Jesus that has only been alluded to briefly so far in the book of Acts. Peter calls Jesus a servant during his sermon in chapter 3 after his healing of the lame man. The suffering servant is a prophetic reference to the Messiah repeated by Isaiah. That reference to Jesus is made direct here in this conversation between Philip and the eunuch. It even gives Luke a chance to quote the scripture from a a real conversation. 
And the way that Luke has told the two stories about Philip sets up a contrast. In Samaria, Simon the magician had embraced the title, the great power of God. And though he seems to give up such aspiration initially, we see later a bitterness in his heart when God denies him the power of the Spirit that's working through Peter and John. He still wants to be the great power of God. It's a grasping of an identity that God God will not share with him. The true great power of God has come into the world, and he was crucified. He came humbling himself as a servant, obedient, even obedient to the point of death. Simon is not the great power of God. The, the story being told here, like who is this speaking about? Who does Isaiah speak about? Who bears our iniquities? Who's buried in the grave of the rich man? The greatness of Jesus was revealed in his humility and his sacrificial love. That, that truth is highlighted through the Ethiopian's quote of Isaiah. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before shears, so he did not open his mouth. Humbling himself, he was exalted because this too is his name, servant of God. He lowered himself below all people so that he might save all people. Philip's witness to the Ethiopian alerts the readers of Acts that something radically different is happening. The barrier has been torn down. Everyone who will believe in Jesus Christ is welcome to enter the family of God and receive an everlasting name. The gospel is not staying with the Jews in Jerusalem. It is going out to every person of every people to the remotest part of the earth. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see some overview charts that go along with our study of the book of Acts, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, and the Gospel of John.